everybody. Mike, Bonnie, and Tim here from the Vox Podcast. Welcome to the show. We're so delighted that uh, you would tune in and give us a bit of your time and attention. Um, it is, let me, just, let me just say this right now. Uh, Tim is in Auburn, California. He is in a hot room and he has, his, he has a white t-shirt on with sleeves rolled up so that his guns are showing. Boom. And, and and it's um I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie it's uh, it's distracting all right and then uh, Bonnie and I don't know why I feel the need to comment on this but Bonnie's hair is up today so it is it's uh, you know I only wash my hair once a week and that's tomorrow so really it's up today now okay so hold on why why just once a week it's too it's so thick it never gets oily but it never I gets would oily. I. No, it doesn't get oily. But I will say, because of the curls, if you don't, if you go more than that, you start to get some dreadlocks. So hold on. So why is it up <laughs> the day before the the shower day? Because oh. this is what it looks like if it's not. Okay, but you gotta okay describe that. So it's, <laughs> it's a little. Like a, it's like um a ug like okay if somebody were to wear an afro that looked good, take that and then run the afro over with a car. And that's sort that's of what, what you it got? would look like, yeah. So okay, so so whenever your hair is up, we know that it's been six days since <laughs> yeah. your hair since has been washed. Since the hair that I okay. shower every day, okay. but the hair. Right. Well, I just that's ag- different. A- again, this is not my area of um, expertise. So, <laughs> so I was how just curious. You, how often do you wash yours? I actually wash it every day, and and by wash it, I mean. I, I take the tiniest bit of shampoo and and run it over my scalp. It's a little dollop. <laughs> Just there a dollop. Go. So anyway, it's very exciting. So um uh anyway, I I just I don't know why, but I had to comment. It's just it's it's um it's just too good. And you man Bonnie's in a white t shirt too. So Yeah, you're so, the only one. You missed the memo. Well, yeah. <laughs> my face is white enough. I don't need any 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 help. Now um, so, so it is official. Bonnie is our co-host. The, the amount of adulation and excitement was totally offensive. Um, <laughs> it was totally exciting. Uh, and, thank you. So Everyone was so kind. Yes. Yes. They were so kind. So anyway, um, so, uh, we've got a couple things to take care of before we get into this week's episode. Uh, we've got some feedback per use bonnie you want to read that uh you want to read that email i do okay here we go love the conversations you've been having and Mm. bravo for adding bonnie as a co-host yeah i relate to her much more than i relate to you you know that's that's very hurtful and obviously this is a woman well we don't know it could be a man with a lot of hair (laughs) <laughs> so you don't know. You have no idea. Um, okay. Robert I, there you go. I just wanted to make a, a couple hair. of comments about the conversation with Tim Gombis about the Bible. Yeah. I studied and taught it for years before I went to seminary. And I find many of the habits I learned then still serve me much better than all the hermeneutical classes. Hmm. First, take out the chapter and verse marks. I don't think there's anything more harmful to our reading of scripture as a whole than these because they break up what was never meant to be used in that way. It's probably the thing that leads to misuse of the text the most. I like her. 
Yeah, the paragraph breaks, the headings, all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of that's in the originals, obviously. Yeah. Second, read several translations side by side. The hermeneutic of every translating committee affects the way the text reads, and subtle differences can make a big impact. Getting a fuller meeting comes when we compare and contrast. I like it. Third, never forget it isn't just a book. It is God's self-revelation, and we study to know and love him more and obey him more fully. Too Too many of the people I've known over the years have turned study into an intellectual hobby with very little life impact. Mm Mm-hmm. That's now, the best way to do it. That's the best way to avoid the Bible is by studying it. Yeah, that that's why really, I study that's it. That's why true. I study it so much. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, on to politics. I love yes. this person because she's just hitting it. No, one and you love her one. because it was. I relate to Bonnie. Well, so that didn't hurt. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I agree completely with the idea that Jesus challenged the leaders of the day. And was sometimes angry when he did it. But he was doing it to their faces, talking to them and not about them, which makes a huge difference. So perhaps framing your comments in a way that you would if they were sitting in front of you would be helpful. In that same vein, it would be nice to hear you sometimes discuss issues of disagreement on the show with the actual person. I believe that the church has unity in Christ, but the but we also have diversity, and learning to live together in diversity is critical. Unity, okay. not uniformity. Got it. Okay, so the so again, I'm seeing a theme in the critiques. I need to need to be way more gracious with people I disagree with, which damn it, I thought I was. So I obviously got to get better there. Um, and then and then, um, yeah, I, I sometimes I think. It would be interesting to be a show that kind of like, well, here's here's a Calvinist and let's let's, you know, d- debate with them. And I'm not sh- like I-, I hear that. Um, and maybe maybe that's good feedback. What do you guys think? I- I'm not sure. Well, I don't I kind of want to push back against that third part a little bit because I know you pretty well. And when I hear you disagree, it sounds the same tone to me that you would say when I've heard you disagree to somebody to their face. So for me, I've never noticed a difference there. Well, I wonder though, if because you don't have people on the show very often that you disagree with, people don't realize that. Oh, I have, well, I think we have tons of people I disagree with. I just don't, I don't interview them in a way that promotes my disagreement with them well i'm sorry that's what i meant yeah because like oh, okay. because you're not actively and openly disagreeing with them on the podcast right i like i wonder i don't know maybe we explain why you do that because i wonder if just because it seems like oh you only disagree when they're not there that maybe you just don't want to disagree to their face but i don't think that's why <laughs> you do that no no i um I think that one of my favorite uh, philosophical, logical fallacies is called the straw man argument. And that's where you misrepresent uh, an opponent's position so that it's easier to, um, you know, to uh, show its logical inconsistencies. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, what, like, when we have people on the show, I want to hear their best stuff. And I, mm. and I don't want them to feel defensive. I don't want them to feel like they're being criticized. I want their best stuff, and then I want to stew on it and talk through it, you know, later down the road. It's not, to me, I, I mean, there are plenty of, of, of podcasts that 
not plenty, but there are a few that are very well known that, that do the back and forth we're disagreeing. Maybe, maybe that's a genre we need to explore. I always just thought it best because I, I always feel like we don't have to be afraid of new ideas. And I want to mm-hmm. model sifting and sorting. And yeah. I want to model listening to people, even mm-hmm. if I'm not jiving totally. I want to model. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't have to announce my disagreement before I'm willing to listen to somebody. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I'm just wrestling with that. That's but that's good. I, what, and the reason we read this stuff is um, I, I this is a conversation. This is a community, and uh, I certainly don't want to be the kind of person that's adding to the ugliness uh, of the world. Uh, when we're into some pretty heavy stuff. Again, I, I, I think there's a place for beating up ideas and getting fired up about ideas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if we can get, Bonnie, your job is to get John Piper. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> how <laughs> great How great would that be? That would be great. Um, who, who, I would would... Be, all right, who would be our top three if we could get anybody on the show that we would disagree with? Well, Piper so, would probably be. Oh, Piper Mark Driscoll would be up there. Would, Mark Driscoll would be on my list, probably. Okay. All right. Franklin Graham. Oh, yes. That's a good one. That's a great one. Um, All right. I'm going to go with the Megan Rapinoe. Really? (laughs) No, no, not at all. I I was like, what? (laughs) I know. No, no, no. Um, Hey, I'll go for the president. I I mean, if we're shooting, I would love to have Donald Trump on the podcast. We're shooting for there the moon. That would be that would be amazing. <laughs> that would. I think. Gosh, that would, be, that would be intense. Or how about how about Obama? I mean, the, oh he, yeah. He, you know that'd be that'd be interesting. All right, so Bonnie, part of your new job. Oh my <laughs> To get Obama on the phone. Yes. Or get Michelle. We'll take Michelle. You know, she's I'll got t- a book. She's Michelle. got a book out. I know. Um. Anyway. So great feedback. Thank you for, you know, the feedback that you guys give is gracious. Oh, my goodness, it's gracious. So thank you for that. And we do take it very seriously. Um, today, though, we're interviewing someone with whom I heartily disagree. Or, I mean, I heartily agree. Uh, whoa, no, whoa, 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 whoa. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> this guy, um, I mean, I'll introduce him when we play the interview. But this guy, so we're, we're, we're going to talk about immigration, which obviously is, is a relatively hot topic these days. And I'm talking to a guy who about eight or nine years ago wrote a book that was unbelievably influential in my understanding, in my moving this from a solely political issue to a biblical issue that then informed my policy opinions, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? Before it was just a political football. Now it was like, oh, no, no, this is a biblical issue. and, and, And my biblical issue can respect the sovereignty of borders and the dignity of every human person at the same time. It's shocking, shocking. You can do both. And uh, anyway, it's a phenomenal, this guy is a phenomenal interview. He's so clear in his thinking and super compelling. And I literally, again, it's one of those interviews where I'm just sitting there and and I'm soaking it in and I'll I'll forget to say something back. He'll finish Mm. a sentence and I'll be just processing with him, and I won't be like ready with my next question. So you've been saying that about most of your interviews lately. I think that's so fun. I'll wait to you. Okay, so next episode, I interview two people who wrote a book back in the day called Colossians Remixed, 
And and they're two of the coolest names, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat. How what a cool name. And they're they're married. They live on this permaculture farm in Canada. Um, and they, they, I mean, I mean, everything is local. They, they, I mean, I asked them what they were doing that day and they're like, well, our kids are going to shear the sheep of the neighbor. Oh my gosh. Did a, you ask if we could go to the farm? We, I want to go. Oh my goodness. Well, she did. Sylvia did her PhD under Tom Wright. Oh, okay. and so I threw, I, I, of course, threw Tom questions in there, but the thing was, I was so excited to talk to these two. I, I, I was, I was a fanboy. It was so dumb. It was so lame. I sounded like a teenage girl at a One Direction <laughs> concert. And I, that's no offense to teenage girls, but, but there is a sound at a One Direction concert, I'm told, that I think, I think was, you have. Not One Direction, but my own version. Oh, well, who is that? Girl. Who is that? I mean, do you want to guess? I'm going to guess, um, let's see, your age. I'm going to guess NSYNC. NSYNC. You guys... Okay. We said that they didn't even play their own instruments. (laughs) Okay, so this is a musician, John Mayer. Okay, I did love John Mayer, but no, this is a band. Oh, it's a band. I Um, guarantee you hate the band. Um Okay. So country is what we're talking now. No, they're pop Um, and they're still they're still going. Nickelback. No, no. Who is you know that? Maybe I'm going to leave this a mystery. Maybe I'm going to leave five? this a mystery. Oh, that's a great guess, Tim. That's a great guess. It's Maroon not five. Maroon Five. No. Um, who who do we hate? Well, it's, I like it. people generally don't like them, but I would like to say this: they're an indie band, and they are the most successful indie band ever. Like they have the most sales, the most whatever. And all I want to say is, loved or hated, the best are never ignored. Is that one of their lyrics? Is that one of their lyrics? No, that was my high school's sports slogan, and I've now applied it (laughs) to to this band. You know what? I'm going to leave this a mystery, and I'm going to see if y'all can figure it out, or maybe someone listening, because it is right. So what years were you in high school, though? Uh, I graduated in 03, so I was there to, you know, or no, I didn't graduate in 03. So Britney Spears. Wait. Yes, that that was the era. They okay. played their own. Here's here's your hints. They played their own instruments. Okay. They write their own songs. Hanson. Yes. yes! You got it. Yes. Yes. That is so good. Yes. You got it. Way to go. Now now, which of the three though was dreamy? I mean, that's is the that old even guy? a question? No. Oh, okay. Well, I don't the know. I don't know. The middle one. Taylor. And you know what the thing about Taylor is? Is that he He's married dreamy. a fan. What? He met this girl backstage, and now they're married, and they have, like, seven kids. And Hello. when I told some, my husband that, he said, that stinks because you met him, and he didn't choose you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was all right, like, Tim. Tim, true. all right. I, before we get to this very important interview, okay, <laughs> what rock star would you want to marry? What rock star would I want to marry? Yep. Yep, Bonnie. So is Bonnie, is your answer Taylor? I mean, it probably was back in the day. Well, what's I'll it now? Think, I, I'll think. I'll think now. But, okay. I mean, Mary, I feel like it's kind of heavy. Like, what about just date? I'm I'm going Mary, but okay. Okay. Okay, da- we'll go Date Mary. is fine, fine, too. I don't know. I feel like, 
I'm already imbalanced enough. If I would have married a rock star, we'd both be dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So Madonna's out. Um, <laughs> she seems a little, a little extreme. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe this wasn't my best question. So there you go. <laughs> what, what would yours be? Uh, a rock star that I would marry. I would say, I mean, Pat I've got. Benatar. Well, love is a battlefield. There's no question about that. I mean, when I was like, when I was 13, I mean, Debbie Gibson would have been like oh right up gosh. there. Oh my gosh! Yes, only, only in my Gibson. only in my dreams. I thought, um, I thought one of the girls from Banana Rama was was pretty cute. Oh, um, I don't even know what that is. Cruel Summer. Uh, I'm oh. your Venus. I'm your fire yes, and your yes, desire. Yes, yes. Very, very important. <laughs> very important music <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> Um, uh, who, uh, that's a great question. Um, Paul Abdul (laughs) kind of too old for me. Um, what about, I know you said you didn't like country, but I mean, you can't deny Shania Twain is great. Okay. If we're, if we're including country, which I didn't realize was included in rock star, um, I got to go faith Hill. I got to go faith. Hill. Oh yeah. Okay. That's fair. I mean, uh, it, it, just yes hands down okay yep and hansen all right so um brothers and sisters sorry for the nonsense but not sorry um so anyway i hope you enjoy the interview um again thank you so much for being a part of the community we love you and we're grateful for you hope you enjoy Hey everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast. Mike Erie here, so excited to talk to Matthew Sorens, who uh, is coming at you live from Aurora, Illinois. Um, and uh, it looks like a pretty epic office from the World Relief Headquarters. Matthew, tell us, um, uh, and, and let me just provide just a little context if I could. So Matthew wrote a book. When was that? When was that book published? Welcome. Yeah, the first edition came out in 2009, and we just did another, a second edition a short time ago called Welcoming mm. the Stranger. Yes, Welcoming the Stranger. So I was uh, working for a very big Orange County, very conservative uh, mega church, and found his book so unbelievable on the topic of immigration. It was unbelievable. It was so good. We brought him in. He presented uh, around the material. We actually wrote a position paper on it and had all sorts of next steps. But it was super, super powerful. Um, I I still have that first copy, and it's earmarked like crazy. But it was the first time this Ohio boy living in California had really started to wrestle with immigration from a biblical perspective and not just a political perspective. So that was eight or nine years ago, and... Um, uh, and I thought Matthew would be so fun to talk to um, regarding what's happening these days. So tell us, first of all, just tell us a little bit about what you do with World Relief and then the immigration table. Sure. So I have worked at World Relief for uh, about 13 years now, um, right out of college, actually. Uh, I started at our local office in Wheaton, Illinois, with our legal services program. So helping immigrants understand their options under U.S. immigration law and where we're able under the law to help them, helping them. Um, and I would say I kind of stumbled into that work. I, I actually started with World Relief in Nicaragua as an intern in college. So I really fell in wow. love with our mission at World Relief of empowering the local church to serve the most vulnerable hmm. and loved what we were doing. Hold in on, Nicaragua. that almost sounds that almost sounds like Jesus. That almost sounds Jesus-y <laughs> right there. Hold on. 
Yeah, well, we, you know, we think that's pretty important. And we really do believe in, in the local church as an institution that flawed as it is, is something that God has called to be about um, caring for the vulnerable in a holistic way. So that looks different in Nicaragua than it does in Africa than it does in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the U.S., most of our work is focused on refugees and other immigrants. Okay. And so I really was drawn to the organization because of my experience in Central America and didn't know really almost anything about immigration in the United States. If anything, mm-hmm. I knew why people were leaving Nicaragua um, at that point, um, right. which at that point was mostly poverty. Now it's more political uh, repression. Hmm. But, um, you know, I came into this job and I vaguely thought that as a Christian, we should love immigrants. It seemed like that would be part of loving our neighbors. But honestly, I'd managed to grow up in a really great Christian home and gone to a great church and went to a great Christian college. And had, I really don't think I'd ever thought very much about what the Bible said on this topic beyond very general, you know, yeah. sort of sense of it. Yeah, me too. So, and because our mission at World Relief is to empower the church, actually, a major part of my first job was finding local churches to host citizenship workshops. So basically, mm-hmm. a bunch of people with their green cards will come and our legal people will sit down with them, make sure they qualify. And then if they do, they sit down with a volunteer from the church to fill out their naturalization application. Wow. And we hit a pretty good amount of resistance from local churches, even to something as I would think uncontroversial as citizenship. You know, these are, this wasn't even touching our people here illegally or not. They all have legal status if they're going to qualify oh, really? for naturalization. But we had churches that say, oh, we don't do immigration. That's a political issue. That's too controversial. Oh, um, really? And I would say most, I mean, frankly, we had Catholic churches that were very eager to welcome us. And yeah. we're happy to work with Catholic churches as well. Um, but most of, we, we had fewer evangelical churches that were willing to go there. And this was at a time, this was 2006, when uh, President Bush was pushing for an immigration reform bill. The mm. Congress uh, was debating things. Uh, there was immigration marches in the streets in cities like LA and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was just a tense time. In some ways, now it seems almost idyllic then compared to now, but it felt <laughs> tense. Right. Yeah. And a lot of churches just didn't, it wasn't that they were against immigrants or for immigrants. They just didn't want to go near what they saw as a political issue. Got um, it. So that was really the origins of, of the book that my colleague Jenny Yang and I wrote. Um, shortly after I started at World Relief, we started working on it and it ended up coming out in 2009 in, in its first edition, really looking at how do we think about immigration, not just as a political issue, though the policies do matter, not just as a cultural or an economic issue, but first and foremost, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, as a biblical issue, as a, mm-hmm. a missional issue. And um, in some ways, that kind of redirected the course of my career at World Relief. I gradually started seeing fewer and fewer legal clients. And mm-hmm. I still have my legal accreditation, but I'm pretty rusty on US immigration law um, in terms of practice. Uh, because most of my work at this point is working with local churches, with denominations, mm-hmm. and then also with a, a coalition that World Relief is a part of and helped to start called the Evangelical Immigration Table that brings in some larger evangelical networks like the National Association of Evangelicals or the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the -hmm. Council for Christian Colleges and Universities and various others that have all said, this issue is actually really important. It's a biblical issue. It's an issue that affects a pretty significant share of our membership, whether that's Mm -hmm. people in congregations in any given denomination or um, in Christian college students who who are what we call dreamers, people who were brought as kids without legal status. It's an issue that's affecting all their institutions. And so we decided we could be more effective if both we would come together to speak to how biblical principles affect uh, public policy questions, but also mm. to how we can encourage people within local churches to address this as a discipleship issue. Nice. Would, and there was just a, 
and I don't know if it's a recent poll, but it's it's making the rounds on Twitter. Just the uh, white, I think it was white evangelicals are some of the lowest, uh, lowest people who support. Um, I don't know immigration policy or I don't I don't remember the specific headline, but. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, so the polling is really complicated, actually, on immigration issues. I think the one that I've seen floating around social media in the last few days, and it is, it's at least a year old, so it's a little, I don't know why it's suddenly a trend, but um, Pew Research Center found that only 25% of white evangelicals believe the United States has a, a moral obligation to welcome uh, refugees. Yes, that which was Which is it. far lower than the population as a whole, and to me is, is quite troubling. Um, if anything, I would think that as people who have the Bible as our authority, we would have... Uh, a particular moral authority as to why we would want to welcome refugees. Uh, and, and in some ways, the strange thing to me over the last few years is refugees in particular used to be the uncontroversial part of what we did mm. at World Relief. Because mm. I'm realizing more and more that most Americans didn't realize this, but uh, anyone who comes to the United States as a refugee has legal status from the moment they have arrived. They've been designated by the United States government abroad, vetted abroad, and are invited to the United States because of having fled a well-founded fear of persecution for particular oh, wow. reasons. Okay. Um, so that's like the legally refugees. And I would say when I started at World Relief, that was the easy part of what we did because they all by definition have this compelling story. I mean, a lot of them are persecuted Christians. Some are persecuted for their political opinions or ethnicity or whatever. And they all had legal status. But something happened probably starting around 2015, and I think a lot of it goes to the, the situation in Europe where you had an unprecedented number of asylum seekers showing up in Europe. Hmm. And somehow people, uh, that affected the way people think about refugees in the United States. And we saw attitudes towards refugees become pretty negative pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Well, I should say pretty polarized, and especially among white evangelicals, um, a majority were you know, we're opposed to bringing in more refugees. We're supportive of policies to basically shut down refugee resettlement altogether for a time. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's been really troubling to us at World Relief. I should also say that we work with some amazing churches who are mostly formed of white evangelicals who are doing amazing things to welcome refugees. So yeah. um, that they may be in that 25% who do see moral obligation, but some of them are just giving in incredibly sacrificially of their time to befriend new refugees coming into the country of their resources uh, because we we don't exist without support from from individuals and churches uh, yeah. and so I don't want to throw white evangelicals under the bus altogether but if you look at the overall <laughs> polling um, the we uh, I am a white evangelical are the group of which the, you know we have the more negative views towards immigrants on almost any number any immigration issue whether you look at um, on illegal immigration or, you know, various categories of immigration questions, how much legal immigration we should have in the United States. Um, it's not that they're all bad poll results from my perspective, but they tend to be less friendly towards immigrants than the population as a whole. Right. Is there, is there a distinction? Do we, do we need to make a distinction between immigration as the broad issue and refugees as a category of immigrant? Yeah, that's, I think that's the right way to frame it. So immigrants are people from one country who are now residing in another. It's a very broad category. Right. Right. Um, in the United States, there's 45 million or so people who are immigrants. Uh, right. Refugees are a subcategory. They are immigrants in that they left one country and now reside in another. But what particularly defines them is why they left because right. of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Right. And then it's probably worth mentioning another category that's in the news, which is asylum seekers. Mm. Asylum seekers are people who basically claim to be refugees, but for whom no government has yet made that determination. 
So it's someone who shows up, whether at an airport or they're on a temporary visa in the United States, or they show up at the border, whether at the port of entry, they walk up over the bridge, over the Rio Grande to the front door, or they cross the border without a visa. Mm. Uh, at any of those places under U.S. law, you can request asylum, which is to say, don't deport me because I have a credible fear of persecution for one of these reasons under the law. Mm. And some of them are eventually approved for asylum and are allowed under our laws to stay. Some of them are eventually denied. They haven't made their case. And it, the burden of proof is on the applicant, which can be very difficult because sometimes the people who say they're going to kill you don't send you a notarized letter outlining particular <laughs> reasons why. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, I've had close friends who've applied for asylum whom, because I prayed with them on a regular basis, I entirely believe that their fear of persecution was genuine and credible. But they didn't have a lot of documentary evidence to make their case oh man um so those cases are are fairly common and then it it also goes to the complexity of our laws because you have to be mm. fleeing persecution because of your race religion political opinion national origin or social group well what if you're fleeing gang violence All right where does that fit in it might yeah. fit in their social group if you've got a creative lawyer but it's not <laughs> really any of the other ones and it, a lot yeah. of this comes down to those sort of how good your attorney is and if you can make the case. I mean, what is a social group? That's a pretty generic, vague thing that goes back to, I mean, the language of our laws comes from a, a convention the U.S. helped to write back in the days after World War II, when as a country, we and a lot of other countries felt pretty bad about having turned away German Jews fleeing the Nazi government, mm -hmm. uh, which we did um, in the days going up to World War II. And many of them were, were returned to, to Germany and were killed in the Holocaust. And after that, we joined with most other countries in the world to say, we shouldn't do that again. If mm. someone comes to our country with a well-founded fear of persecution, we should shelter them, we should give them refuge. Mm. And those are the, the complicated thing now is we have higher than the normal numbers of people making those requests, and particularly from Central America, not from Mexico actually. People think about the Mexican border and think of Mexicans. There's very few Mexicans coming at this point, mm. but from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras in particular, which are countries with extremely high homicide rates but also countries with very high rates of poverty. And some of the people are actually fleeing poverty, which is sympathetic, but doesn't qualify you under the law. Got it. What are we seeing down at the border right now with the child separation stuff and the, you know, I'm seeing pictures of these incredibly crowded detention facilities, but, but then I'm seeing border patrol agents, you know, taking, film through their agent you know for the through their sender saying hey the, no, nothing's going on here i see this used politically on both sides uh, i mean what what is all of that what's happening there yeah there's definitely a lot of, of posturing going on around what's happening the big picture trend that's happening at the border over the last few years is i would say three shifts that are important to understand just historically mm -hmm. uh, one is as i mentioned it's gone from being mostly mexicans who show up at the u.s mexican border to being mostly not Mexicans, primarily Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Guatemalans. The other shift is it used to be um, mostly people trying to sneak into the United States to go find a job. So they were trying to evade border patrol. Hmm. Now the significant majority of people are looking for the border patrol. And wow. that is because they want to request asylum. Hmm. And some of them request asylum at the port of entry. They go up, you know, in between Tijuana and San Diego or Ciudad Juarez in El Paso, and they, they file for asylum there. But what the administration has done in the last couple of years is this policy called metering, where instead of getting to walk up and say, I'm here to request asylum, they tell you it's go, go wait. And it might be weeks. When I was uh, in Tijuana 
in the fall, it was five weeks people were being told to wait. It got up to several months and now is in most parts of the border several months. And before so, you can even ask. Before you can even ask. Basically, they're, they have officers blocking you from reaching the halfway point of the bridge where legally you'd have the right to request asylum. Uh. Um, so that's basically funneled people out to the desert where they can request asylum when they're apprehended by a border patrol agent. Um, so uh. it's not the most efficient way to do this, in my view, but it's, it, maybe it's a deterrent to requesting asylum. It doesn't seem to be working because plenty of people are requesting asylum. Mm -hmm. And I think it's morally problematic that we would want to deter people from requesting asylum. That's not to say we should approve them all, but we ought to give people due process to make sure under our laws that we don't send someone back who has a well-founded fear of persecution. Hmm. So that's the second shift. The third shift is uh, it used to be mostly single adults who were coming or maybe married adults who had left their wife and children um, right. back in their country of origin. They were going to work for a while, send some money back. Uh, now the vast majority of people being apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border are families and children, families or with children or, or unaccompanied children, meaning kids who show up without a parent. Um, those numbers have gone up dramatically in the last couple of years. And there's probably a few reasons for that. Um, one is that the kids are themselves in danger, and that's a dynamic with gang violence in particular in El Salvador or Honduras. Another, frankly, is that you know we had this family separation policy kind of formalized a year ago in summer of 2018, mm -hmm. where it gets, it gets super complicated in the law, but basically it was a zero tolerance policy where people who were crossing the border without inspection between ports of entry, adults were being charged criminally which is possible, it's not required, the same way this, a police officer doesn't need to give you a speeding ticket for going five miles over the speed limit, he can, or he can use his discretion not to. And under other administrations, uh, they usually use their discretion not to charge people criminally for unlawful entry if they were requesting asylum or if they have kids with them. Hmm. Precisely for the reason that if you charge someone criminally, you have to put them in jail, at least for a short time, and you have to take, find something to do with the kids. So they, uh, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security in 2018 implemented this zero tolerance policy saying we are going to criminally charge every adult crossing unlawfully. And if they have kids, we will reclassify the kids as unaccompanied children hmm. um, and basically put them into shelters for unaccompanied kids, which most of those shelters are actually operated by nonprofits. Increasingly, our government is now using for-profit companies to run those shelters. Hmm. Um, uh, so, and it, I mean, it's a necessity when you have genuinely unaccompanied kids, you can't just turn them over. But with that situation, you had people who had showed up with their parents who were being separated. They didn't even really track very well which parents they'd been taken from. So it created totally. a huge mess. The administration walked back from that in June of 2018 because it was so unpopular, I think for appropriate reasons. But um, one of the things we're seeing now is you um, still have unaccompanied kids showing up. And that's the situation that's been in the news most recently. Under the law, under the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which was a bipartisan bill signed by President Bush, if an unaccompanied child from a non-contiguous country, so not from Mexico or Canada, is apprehended at the border, they're supposed to be turned over to from Border Patrol to the Department of Health and Human Services within 72 hours, precisely because Border Patrol agents do not have the training or capacity to take care of children. Yeah. Law enforcement officers, that's not their job. Um, but what's happened in the last few months is the numbers have been higher than the normal. Hmm. And part of that, it, they're no longer doing the zero tolerance thing with biological parents, but they, all, they have been taking kids from like an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent. 
who are sometimes sort of informal adoptive parents where the you know, parents may be dead or the parents may be in the United States, but they're traveling with the relative. Uh, Those kids are still being separated in many cases. So the numbers of unaccompanied kids have been very high and the Department of Health and Human Services is out of money. They don't have, or was out of money. They didn't have adequate space. So they just wouldn't, the, the border patrol didn't know where to put people and they were basically accumulating in these border patrol facilities along the border designed to hold maybe 50 to 100 men. And at the, this, the one that was in the news most significantly, we had at one point 600 or 700 children. Oh. Uh, and these are not facilities with adequate resources. And that's not to say, that's not to blame the border patrol for that. Most of them were sounding the alarm before, most border patrol agents have been sounding the alarm for a while, but you know, some of them were on their own dime trying to provide toys or things like that for these kids. Mm. But that's not, the job that they're trained for, or frankly, that they are equipped for. Um, and that's really led to the, the newest round of crisis at the border. Um, and then there's a separate dynamic with families. So if you show up as a family, until a, f a month or so ago, you and you requested asylum, you'd be held for a little while, you'd go through a credible fear interview to make sure you had a, at least a decent a possibility of winning an asylum claim. Mm. And then if you passed that, you'd be they put an ankle bracelet on the parents, which is a GPS tracking unit, so that they can make sure you show up for court, and they release you. Hmm. And there was churches all along the U.S. side of the border. I, I just visited some in El Paso recently um, that would help these families out, get them a shower, get them a, a nice meal, maybe a change of clothes, and then help them get on a bus or an airplane. To, usually they have family elsewhere in the United States. Right. That's what was happening in most cases. Uh, because of basically the threat of tariffs from the administration, the Mexican government has now agreed to take people back. So mm -hmm. it, now the vast majority of people are being turned back to Mexico, where mm -hmm. instead of, uh, they, they also have churches doing their best to help in Mexico. I was at a little evangelical church in, in Juarez two weeks ago. It's a 30, 40 person church, uh, intermember church, and they've got 110 people sleeping there. Um, wow. You know, with like cots between pews. I mean, it's not a big facility. Yeah. And they're not there for two or three days because they don't have anywhere to go. Their, their court dates for their asylum hearings are, I mean, one guy I met from El Salvador, his court date was about a month out. And that's the first court hearing. Um, wow. And there can be multiple hearings. An asylum process can take years, actually. It's very long, very complicated. And the reality is they're hard to win, but especially if you don't have a lawyer, if you don't have legal mm -hmm. representation. That's something we do at World Relief. We do some legal representation, especially out of our Southern California office. But it's really hard to find a U.S. attorney in Mexico. I mean, it's, it's, we, our, our staff have tried to take a, a very limited number of cases of people who've been forced to remain in Mexico, but it takes time to cross the border. There's conf, client confidentiality issues when your phone gets inspected coming across the border. Mm -hmm. It's just super complicated and logistically very difficult. And you have to wonder if that's part of the point, is most of these people are not going to have their cases approved because it turns out most you know, low-income campesinos from Guatemala are not experts in U.S. immigration law. Yeah. Uh, neither are most U.S. citizens. You know, our asylum laws are super complicated. Wow. But, and then, I mean, the, those border communities in Mexico are, are really not safe places. I mean, the, the drug cartels are quite powerful in a place like Juarez. Um, and, you know, there's real risk for kids being trafficked or um, otherwise yeah. violence. So it's, it's a pretty stark situation at the moment. And it is quickly shifting from a stark situation on the U.S. side of the border to out of sight, out of mind, it's on the Mexican side of the border now. Right. And probably most of the United States will stop paying attention at that point. Yeah. Um, before we get to kind of why we should care biblically, 
you know, yeah, I, I hear, and I'm sure, bro, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but it's like, I've heard people say, well, they shouldn't have brought their children here illegally then. Yeah. Um, um, and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't civil treatment encourage them to come? Um, how do you, how do you respond to that way of thinking? Yeah. First of all, I just think we always need to treat children humanely, regardless. I mean, we shouldn't punish children, even if we think their parents' actions weren't right. Um, we should be looking out for kids. Um, and, and we, we don't hold kids responsible for their parents' actions in any other area of law. Uh, but there, the reality is the circumstances that people are coming from are diverse. And I, I want to be the first to say, I don't think they all qualify for asylum or, or, you know, should be allowed to stay under our laws. But that doesn't mean we can't treat them humanely and give them due process while we determine that um, and minimize things like long-term detention or separating children from parents. Uh, I do think it would be in the interest of the United States to do a much better job of communicating in, for example, Central America, what our asylum laws are. You know, I mean, it would make sense for us to communicate. We do have laws to protect people fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution for these reasons. If you are fleeing poverty, we're sorry, but there's not a visa for that. And I think actually there should be more visas for that. I mean, I think that would be in the interest of the United States, especially at a time when we have a 3.5, 3.7% unemployment rate and huge needs in particular sectors of our economy to have visas available that you could apply for in Guatemala City uh, to come on an airplane and come meet a labor need in the United States. But I don't want people making a dangerous journey where they are quite likely to experience violence, abuse, even sexual assault um, when they're not going to be approved and they're not going to be allowed to stay long term. Can you hear that? A little bit. <laughs> that is, I, I should have known. It's every Wednesday at noon. It's our tor tornado siren. I well, that's better than an actual tornado. Um, <laughs> right, 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 right. I'm so, I'm so sorry. No, no worries. Please at continue. All. You are on a roll. Um, so I think that you know, I, I, I think we can treat people humanely, and we're a big, strong country that can figure out how to treat people humanely. Mm -hmm. I, and frankly, I, I do think that goes to one of the root issues is we should have more legal uh, people who are seeking asylum many of them have not violated a single law if you go up to the port of entry and you request asylum you're not an illegal immigrant in any sense like you've mm. not violated any laws at least in the u.s i can't speak to mexican laws um but we're basically deterring people from going through that front door legal process with this metering policy where we're telling mm. people to wait weeks wait months again in a kind of dangerous border community and that funnels people out to the desert where it's it's, it's complicated because on one hand, it can be a misdemeanor offense to unlawfully enter the country. It is also explicitly legal. I believe it's section 208 of the Immigration Nationality Act to request asylum, whether you enter at a port of entry or not. Mm -hmm. So we have made that op opening in our laws, again, for some good reasons. If you have people genuinely fleeing persecution, we don't right. want to turn them back to violence on a technicality. Right. Um, but I think we should be doing all we can to invest in the infrastructure to, to, on an efficient basis, process asylum claims, make sure that people are getting due process, ideally that they have legal representation. Um, but if, let very honestly, and this is where I think some of the critics have a fair point, some people who are coming, and most of them don't understand asylum law at all. They're, they've heard something from a smuggler. The United States is a statue of liberty. It's for the tired, poor, teeming masses yearning to breathe free. Someone should probably tell them that's not true and hasn't been true for a hundred years. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not our policy in the United States. Um, roughly 100 years that's not been the case uh so people come on that hope and some of them come because they've seen that it works for their friends who've come who mm -hmm. applied for asylum even though they were fleeing desperate poverty 
they eventually get sent back in most cases, but usually after two years waiting for an asylum claim. And in the meantime, they were able to work in a job that, well, probably a pretty miserable job from the perspective of most American citizens, pays a lot more than most people are earning in Guatemala or in Honduras. Hmm. So if we had a more efficient asylum processing system, again, not like you show up, we're turning you around the next moment without an attorney or due process, but not a two-year backlog, our fundamental problem, I think, is we've invested so many resources in an infrastructure to keep people from sneaking into the country, and that's not actually our problem right now. Mm. There's not many people trying to sneak into the country. I don't, I'm not saying none, but you know, a border wall has some effectiveness for keeping people, you know, at least slows people down who are trying to sneak into the country. Right. It doesn't stop asylum claims. In fact, in El Paso, where I was, one thing people don't realize is the border uh, the wa- the wall is often built 10 feet north of the actual border. So people mm. show up on the southern side of the border wall that exists and they request asylum and they're allowed in because the law allows them to. Um, wow. they've, they've still technically crossed the border a few feet before the wall. Right. That was technically an, a misdemeanor offense potentially. And oh, they'll be charged as such. But, you know, this we've invested our infrastructure for a problem designed as a, it, you know, all this debate is, is it a national emergency? I think it is an emergency, but it's a humanitarian emergency, not a national security emergency. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, I mean, there's no reason to think that these are people trying to harm the United States in any significant number. And the fact that they are availing themselves to our government to be test, you know, to have fingerprint checks done and, and be, you know, have us verify their identity. That's not how bad people try to come to the United States. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they do try to sneak in. Um, And frankly, some, if they were going to come in on a visa, they'd come in through an airport, which is how we should probably be more concerned about terrorists coming to the United States than across the U.S.-Mexico border. Got it. I remember um, people have asked every now and again sort of what my take was on immigration. And I just quote you. You said you had this three-point thing that I thought was just brilliant. Make it, make it harder to come illegally. Make it easier to come legally. I, I'm just quoting you, so yep. I love that you're nodding. And then, and then there's the path forward for those that are here already illegally. That was a that you'd set a fine, a background check, yeah. You know, uh, all uh, you know, t- the paying uh, paying taxes and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, and, and I, I think, always thought, no, go ahead. I mean, it, to me, that's the best way to even from a Christian perspective to reconcile some of these biblical principles that we've got to deal with as Christians. Because we do want to be compassionate. We want to keep families together. There's biblical reason for that. We also want to respect the law. Uh, you know, I, I don't think as Christians we have the, the opportunity, we should be saying the law doesn't matter or, you know, if a law is inconvenient, we should ignore it. That doesn't mean all laws are good or that we shouldn't change them, but that's precisely what we're saying is we should change the law, facilitate legal immigration. Uh, almost any economist will tell you that's in our own economic interest. Uh, any denominational leader will tell you it's what's revitalizing the church in the United States is mm. growth in immigrant communities as churches are declining among native born white U.S. citizens. Um, and then, yeah, I think it should be harder to immigrate illegally. Part of our problem is we've made it, we've made the only possibility of getting to the United States to support your family to come unlawfully Mm -hmm. or to come through an asylum system that is a lawful process. But for some of these people, they absolutely do qualify. Others of them have maybe marginal cases and some of them really don't qualify for asylum, but they don't have any possibility to go file for a visa to come lawfully in their home country, even Mm -hmm. though if they manage to get here there's a job waiting for them, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And people are looking to work and to provide for their families. And that's been the American story for a pretty long time. And then that that last piece is, well, okay, what do we do with those people who came 20 years ago, who are pretty well a part of the community now, their kids are born here. Um, 
you know, they're part of our local churches. What we've said is we don't think a mass deportation is the right option that says, yeah, you've been here 20 years, but we're going to pick you up, take you away from your spouse or your kids, send you back to the country you left. Um, that's incredibly expensive. It's, uh, the, you know, the humanitarian dynamics of doing that to children are complicated. On the other hand, we also don't believe in an, a mass amnesty that says you broke the law, but we're just going to ignore that. The law doesn't matter. Here's your citizenship. I think if you look at passages like Romans chapter 13, we, we are called as Christians to respect the civil authorities that God has established. But we think that there's ways forward that acknowledge the violation of law and penalize it with a fine, you know, with some sort of a restitution, which, by the way, the vast majority of undocumented immigrants that I know would pay in a second. And if they don't have the money, they would get a loan to pay it. Like they, especially those who are within the church. I had uh, a friend of our family who's from Venezuela who's, uh, talking to my wife recently and she's i mean she overstayed a visa from venezuela for pretty good reasons like she wouldn't be eating right now had she not done so mm. um, venezuela is a terrible situation right now but she is legitimately anguished about her lack of legal status she wants desperately to get right with the law but she just doesn't qualify under the law to do so mm -hmm. and she knows that if she went back not only would she not have food to eat and to feed her her child but many of her relatives whom she's supporting by working in the United States um, and, and working well below her capacity because she's a professional. She has, you know, mm. high levels of degrees, but she's working in a pretty low level job in the US. But those are the sort of situations that I think are actually very common. And especially mm. for Christians, a lot of people are really anguished by their unlawful status. They want to make it right. And that's the sort of policy change that we'd like to see at World Relief that, and at the Evangelical Immigration Table that would say, we're not saying it's a free pass or that it was okay that you overstayed that visa or entered the country unlawfully 15 years ago. But here's a way to make it right. And mm -hmm. if you also committed a serious violent offense, then you're going to be deported. But if your only offense was overstaying that visa or crossing the border unlawfully and you've been working, you've been paying taxes, most people don't realize that most of these people who are unlawfully present in the country, not working lawfully, are still filing pay income tax returns in many cases. Um, they are all paying sales taxes. They're all paying property taxes. And they're mostly part of our society, but not legally. And mm. we think that sort of uh, weight reconciliation with the law is really important. Well, I think that's so, Matthew, I think that's so brilliant. Um, because so much of the criticism I hear, it, it's the all or nothing, right? It's the uh, I think we should show compassion. Well, that means you're for open borders. No, that 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 doesn't mean yeah. uh, that we're for open borders. I, I you know, and, and and respecting the law. What about Romans 13? Okay, um, so I love. I mean, I just it's such an attractive posture to me uh, as a way forward. When you, so how do you convince someone? Particularly now, it has become such a political football. Uh, that this is a biblical issue because because you know I'll go to Deuteronomy or wherever and it's like well yeah but we're not Israel and it doesn't matter yeah how so how do you make that case yeah you know one thing I think we do and like when I speak at a church you know I just started with a bunch of policy stuff what's happening because uh, that's what's on our minds but that's yeah. never where I start on a Sunday morning in church you know like no, I start of course, with of course well what does the Bible say on this topic and the Bible t says a ton on the topic of immigration first of mm -hmm. all. You know, think through your favorite characters in the Old Testament. How many of them didn't cross a border at one point or another? Mm -hmm. Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, uh, David fleeing, you know, fleeing under King Saul. Mm -hmm. Even in the New Testament, King Jesus himself crosses over to Egypt as a small child fleeing, fleeing persecution under King Herod. He's basically a refugee. So that's, it's a pretty significant theme in the stories of Scripture. 
And then God has a ton to say to the people of Israel about how to treat immigrants. And we do sometimes get like, well, that's the Old Testament. That's, you know, we don't follow all the Old Testament law. That's, that's fair. Um, but we're told in Deuteronomy 10 why God has these rules for how to treat the foreigner in the land. And it's yeah. tied to his own character, that mm-hmm. God loves those who are foreigners, who are widows, who are orphans. In fact, those three groups of people get mentioned over and over again in the Old yeah, Testament. Yeah, that's right, yeah. In the books of the law, in the... Uh, in the books of prophets, uh, the, the prophets come along and tell Israel, like, you have failed to protect mm-hmm. the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, or the sojourner, the stranger, depending upon which Bible translation you're reading in English. And, and then in, in the New Testament, we have, uh, we have the command to practice, practice hospitality, which I think I missed for most of my Christian life, that hospitality, in, at least in the Greek of the New Testament, is philoxenia. <laughs> That's is right. Literally Welcoming the, the stranger. The love of strangers. Like, it's not yeah. having your friends or your in-laws over for, you know. <laughs> it's not a potluck? It's not a potluck. Well, it is with, to, you know, with people you don't know, which is. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds actually a lot like Jesus in the Gospels. Like, he says at one point, like, you love your friends, big deal. Everybody loves their friends. Like, that, you know, the tax collectors and the pagans are doing that. What Jesus calls us to is this radical thing where we love strangers and love our enemies. Like, I won't even push us quite that hard. Uh, <laughs> loving strangers, though, is pretty countercultural. I mean, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons that were all about stranger danger, right? Like, mm-hmm. we are mm-hmm. taught, even as kids, that strangers are scary people. And I have kids. I get why we send that message. I, of course, I want to protect children. But I think some of us carry a, that idea with us into adulthood, where we see people who are different from us, who are unknown to us. Uh, and we kind of revert our eyes, don't make eye contact, hunch up our shoulders and think this yeah. is a potential threat to me. Well, 9-11 changed everything yeah, exactly. right? for, I, for our generation. I mean, that that's definitely for, true. You never I had never until 9-11 looked around and thought we're in danger. Yeah. Right. Then that's the privilege, of course. Yeah. But um, but that changed. And all of a sudden. And not we, not in rational ways necessarily either. I mean, none of the 9-11 hijackers came in across the U.S.-Mexico border. None of them were, I mean, they were, they came in, they didn't come in as refugees either. All the fears around refugee resettlement. Well, they came in on tourist visas, on student visas. Um, and, um, and frankly, from countries that when we did start doing travel bans in particular countries, they weren't the countries the 9-11 hijackers came from, um, which is largely Saudi Arabia. Um, so, we should have good vetting systems. We should know who's coming in. That's an appropriate role of government. But we, we've set up this false dichotomy where we have to choose between being a compassionate country and being a safe country. Boom, boom, preach, and Matthew, that's it. The Biblically, I don't think that holds up because frankly, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if you look at the example Jesus gives you of what it looks like to love your neighbor, it was a Samaritan who stopped and put himself at some risk yeah, very to help so. someone of a different religion and a different ethnicity who was in yeah. need. Um, that was a dangerous road to Jericho. Yeah, it had a reputation. Absolutely. The priest and the Levite in that story in Luke chapter 10, they were being pretty prudent from a human perspective and not stopping and lingering to help out some random stranger. So on one level, I think we should love our neighbors even if it's not safe. But then if you look at the stats, it is safe in the United States. I mean, we work at World Relief with churches in other parts of the world who actually are putting themselves at some real risk to help a large number of of asylum seekers coming over from neighboring countries in the Middle East who have not been thoroughly vetted. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about welcoming refugees to the United States, these are people who, uh, looking at the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program in particular, there's, they've, first of all, there's 3 million refugees in the world, and last year the United States accepted 23,000. So it's less than one-tenth of 1% of the world's refugees who make the cut, mm-hmm. who get the invitation to the United States. That's only after they've been thoroughly vetted, a vetting process that usually takes somewhere between 18 months and three years. Wow. If there's a half of a hint that someone doesn't 
isn't the person we want in the United States, there are plenty of other people in the other 99.9% of the world's refugees happy to take that slot. Hmm. And it's been really successful. That, that particular vetting process is far more thorough than what our government has for any other category of visitor or immigrant coming to the United States. Since 1980, when the Refugee Act was signed into law, there's been 3 million refugees who've come to the United States through that refugee resettlement program, and not a single one of them has taken an American life in a terrorist attack. Hmm. That's like a, a really good record, and we should give some credit to the hardworking officers of the Department of Homeland Security who have to vet people, who have to make sure they are bringing in the most vulnerable people who are definitely not people who want to do harm. And, and then even, I mean, so others would say, yeah, but what about the people sneaking across the border? And I, again, I think that's a legitimate concern. I think we should have a secure border. I think we should expect our government to know who's coming in, who's going out. What's not fair to presume is that those who have come in unlawfully are necessarily more criminal than, than anyone else. In fact, if you look at FBI crime data, immigrants, whether they are lawfully present or unlawfully present, less than 1% are incarcerated, at least if you look at adults 18 to 54 whereas it's about 1.5% of native-born U.S. citizens. So that's not to say be afraid of your native-born U.S. citizen neighbors. I think we're better off sticking to that biblical <laughs> command of be not afraid. Right. But if you want to be rational, you should be more afraid of your citizen neighbors than of your immigrant neighbors. Yeah. Uh, they just don't commit crimes at the same rates as citizens do. And that's, I also don't think that's because they're more virtuous. I think it's because they are aware of the consequences. Because yeah. if I steal a candy bar in the state of Indiana as a native-born U.S. citizen, it's a kind of a slap on the wrist, misdemeanor offense. An immigrant with their green card, lawfully present, steals the same candy bar, and it could be a deportable offense. Because under immigration law, that's a crime involving moral turpitude, mm. which was a word I had to look up in the dictionary when I started practicing immigration law. Totally. Turpitude. Um, how? Okay, so how do people best help? So I, I, so, you know, here, and, and we've got listeners all over the country. Mm -hmm. So I, I can imagine if you're close, if you're in uh, San Diego County, if you're, um, you know, uh, Southern Texas, that the, the opportunities to help are very, um, easily seen. Yeah. What about, what about, you know, what about for kind of normal folk who are just like, oh, I, this is a thing. How do we help? Yeah. Well, and actually, even for people in South Texas or San Diego, there are still some need for help. But in the last month, it's really shifted to Mexico. So you might have to cross the border if you really want to help most of the people who are in need. Uh, there's some being allowed into the U.S. still. Um, but for people in, elsewhere in the country, one thing I would say is advocacy is really important. And that that was uncomfortable for me from the Christian tradition I'm a part of that likes to just stay away from anything that sounds like politics. Mm -hmm. Be really clear, we are completely nonpartisan at World Relief. We're not telling you who to vote for. We're not saying the Republicans have this figured out or the Democrats. We're saying we want Republicans and Democrats to pursue public policies that we think are consistent with biblical values. Mm -hmm. And that includes, yes, respecting the rule of law. We think it's appropriate to have secure borders, but it also means um, respecting the dignity of every human person. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, it means keeping the unity of the family whenever possible. And we think it guides us towards that process of, of restitution and, and reconciliation for those who are unlawfully in the country. So uh, the evangelical immigration table that I mentioned is one of the main ways that we do that sort of advocacy at World Relief. And I know that sounds like a cop out, like call your congressman, but a lot of these issues have fundamental systemic roots that we can't solve by sending you know stuff to the border. Like that doesn't right. actually solve the underlying problem. Yeah. That said, there are good organizations doing good work on both sides of the border. Um, a former colleague from World Relief of Mine runs this organization in El Paso. It's called Ciudad Nueva, which I was there to visit a couple weeks ago. I think very highly of them. Some of my colleagues in Southern California at World Relief are doing things 
you know, in that San Diego, Tijuana area. Most of them would tell you they don't actually need stuffed animals. Uh, they, they, it's a lot easier to use cash to figure out, you know, to meet the need that there is at any given moment and buy mm. things in Mexico if that's mm. where the needs are. Um, another huge need is for legal services. And again, we're, we're a drop in the bucket and any legal services organizations, really, they're not meeting the vast majority of asylum seekers are not going to get representation, especially if they're held in Mexico. But there are people we can help, and we could we could help more with more resources. So if people want to go to worldrelief.org, they can see opportunities to do that. Actually, worldrelief.org slash families. Mm. Uh, and then I would say, fundamentally, we need the church to think about this issue as Christians. And mm. Christians who, you know, who are figuring out how they relate to the church right now, it's a confusing time for a lot of people. We need more people who've been discipled to think in biblically informed ways about this topic. So we've put together a bunch of resources, uh, starting with that Welcoming the Stranger book uh, that Jenny and Yang and I did a few years back. Um, and, but also we've got an ebook from the Evangelical Immigration Table that's free. People can go find thinking biblically about immigrants and immigration reform. We've got a, a bookmark with 40 Bible verses on it. So it doesn't tell you what, how to interpret those passages, but you know, we think it's important that people realize the Bible has a lot to say on this topic. Mm-hmm. And we know from polling that most people, especially white evangelicals, but this is true for, for non-white Christians of various backgrounds as well, most of them have not heard a lot about how to treat immigrants in church. Mm-hmm. It, about, That's one, right. about one That's in five right. say they've ever heard a message on the topic of immigration in their church. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean that people haven't been discipled in how to think about immigrants. They've just been discipled by Fox News or MSNBC or mm-hmm. crazy uncles on Facebook or wherever. <laughs> And um, yeah. that's unfortunate because they're not getting a particularly Christ-like perspective most yeah. of the time. Yeah, I would really um, encourage people to to buy your book. And I'm not a big purveyor, you know, go out and buy someone's book. But this this was this was massively helpful for me. And um, and and if you've appreciated sort of hearing Matthew's perspective, this is the second edition substantially different than the first. Uh, yeah, we've. Um, I'd say it's probably about fifty percent of it is new or updated. Um, just cause nice. For better or worse, like the Bible chapter didn't change much because that didn't change in the last ten years. <laughs> uh, the history chapter didn't change much, but the chapter on what's happening with immigration policy was pretty dramatically uh, and had to yeah. be updated yeah. uh, for the new administration. And I mean, we wrote this under the Bush administration, so that's how long it's been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also we put a lot more about refugees because frankly, when we wrote the first edition, illegal immigration was super complicated, super controversial. Refugees were not. So we didn't feel like yeah. we needed to spend a lot of time there. And I think we do need to spend more time there now. Boy, no kidding. Matthew, man, I seriously can't thank you enough. This is so helpful. Um, and so you're on Twitter, of course. Uh, spell your last name. Yeah, it's, it's confusing. Soren's S-O-E. R-E-N-S. So Twitter, it's just Matthew Sorens. Uh, Matthew, like in the Bible, S-O-E-R-E-N-S. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, and check out the book. Bro, I'm I'm very grateful for your time. Yeah. So hold on a second. I'm going to do an outro for us. And then uh, I want to just say thank you after I stop recording. Okay? Sounds good. So anyway, um, uh, to our Vox community, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. Until next time, friends, thank you so very much.